So the talk tonight is about seeing the world with quiet eyes. Seeing the world with quiet eyes. And this is equanimity. Some years ago, I came across this writing by the Reverend Howard Thurman, an African-American who founded the Interdenominational Church of Fellowship in San Francisco. And I've been continually inspired by his writing. I want to read it to you. This is part of uh, what he wrote. How may one work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world, without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with all its vicissitudes, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? And so because I'm one of those who would like to be able to look out upon the world with a more tranquil spirit, seeing the world with more quiet eyes instead of reactivity, I'm always asking myself this question, how can I do that? And of course, uh, being in the Dharma and in the role that Steve and I and Deborah are in, it seems, it can seem like, you know, it's a quiet world for us, but there's a lot going on. There's, there's just a lot of responsibilities that we have to carry out and uh, to hold in the world. So seeing the world with quiet eyes, when I feel that it's one of the subjective experiences of equanimity, it feels like in those moments the mind and heart can open to all of life, to all that one has to face with all of the stresses and responsibilities and the tensions and pressures including all the joys and all the beauty of life. In fact, when the mind is really open with equanimity, we're not just kind of on one side of being drowning in the suffering, but we're also able to open to the joy and uh, explore that and enjoy it as well in all its transience. So this is equanimity. It also feels like an inner uh, place of spaciousness, a place inside that's really balanced, that can handle what it needs to handle in a balanced way. But if one is not balanced, sometimes and maybe many times one can also feel that and maybe for a short time can refrain from doing anything or saying anything. It's really helpful to have this kind of space in the mind where we can see the world with quiet eyes because it gives really, it gives us a space to see what we need to do to act appropriately, to have time when there is time to uh, think about, to reflect on, to see what the best way is to say our words, to do our actions in the world. The Buddha often spoke of the eight winds of change, or sometimes you hear about it as the eight vicissitudes of life. And I spoke about it this afternoon. The praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow, 
fame and disrepute. Throughout all ages, uh, human beings have experienced this. The habit patterns that abound in the world that we're entrained to react to the praise, the gain, the joy, the fame, all that is pleasant, we will normally react with attachment or uh, with entitlement or excessive elation or obsessiveness or some kind of addiction in extreme cases. This is how it goes in the world. This is, these are our tendencies that we're entrained in because the world is what it is. It's how it is. It entrains us. We react to the blame, the loss, the sorrow, the disrepute, all that is unpleasant with the pain of hatred, with the pain of aversion. Sometimes in extreme cases, it's rage, striking out at. Or even this could be the pain of feeling shut down. So these are the reactivities that we have uh, to what goes on in the world, in our families or in the big world. What I just mentioned are what are called the far enemies, basically under attachment or aversion. These are universal conditions, praise and blame, gain and loss, etc. And the universal tendencies, they're prevalent today just as they were 2,600 years ago in the time of the Buddha. It's no wonder uh, in this day and age we have different circumstances than the time of the Buddha, although there was war and there was, you know, businesses that uh, went after things because of uh, attachment, because of clinging, because of desire, because of lusting after uh, money or power. David Loy, the Buddhist scholar of our time today, a Zen practitioner and teacher, laid out his view in, in this way. And I can see it in this way. Probably many of you can. We live in a culture where our economic system institutionalizes greed, where militarism is institutionalized ill will, and where the media is institutionalized delusion. I know it's not all true with everything, but we live in a culture that just uh, where that abounds, that's all around us. So sometimes, of course, out of a feeling of that we need to protect ourselves or we need to do something very quickly, we respond with the reactivity of uh, attachment or aversion and all the different forms that I just mentioned. Those three, the, um, the culture that institutionalizes greed, ill will, and delusion, they all work together to reinforce each other. So then our reactivity to it adds layer upon layer of more suffering. If there were one day or even one moment when everyone in the world just had equanimity for whatever they were facing inwardly and outwardly, it would probably change the world so radically. Just to have one moment where there was an absence of greed or hatred or delusion in everyone's heart all at once. 
but we know that this isn't the world, the way of this world. Um, oftentimes, I would remark to Steve that, oh, more and more as I open to the Dharma, I need more and more equanimity because what I face are what I call the defects of samsara. Samsara is this cycle of suffering that we live within, where greed and hatred and delusion just abound more and more, layer upon layer, because that's how some of us, if not all of us, react to what is going on. And then just, this is what comes from it, war and uh, consumerism in a way that enforces greed. So our spiritual practice helps us to cultivate ways to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. Rest the mind before it falls into extremes. This is another description of equanimity. Being able to open to the outer conditions of the world and open to them with a clear mind, without the spin or without the added feeling of needing to go after something because it's so pleasant. Of course we do do that, but when we can do it with mindfulness, we know what's, what's leading to what's beneficial in that and what's leading to suffering. So we know we, we can open with a clear mind uh, to what's going on and not add aversion or any way that we put that into the world or into our minds as a habit that will make that groove of the cow paths of the mind even deeper. The inner spin of delusion as well. With a heartfelt connection and a spacious balance, we're able to approach the world with this practice of equanimity. In fact, again, that's one of the heartfelt uh, experiences of it. There's a really deep connection to what's going on. There's not like this far away, push away distance to what's happening. We really can open to what's difficult in our own hearts and in the world. And we can have a balance about it. We can be in that balance that doesn't need to take that scorpion move and, and strike back with something that comes out of habit. So it's not this precarious balancing like being on the razor's edge and we just have to stay right here in this particular middle path so we don't fall this way or that way. And we can sort of rest the mind in a kind of spacious stance, a broad stance, a wide and steady, stable, grounded stance. The Dharma and the ancient scriptures give different examples from nature. And I think the one that most of you are familiar with, because I hear it all the time from various of you who have taken the mindfulness-based stress reduction course, the one about the mountain, being like a mountain, no matter what's happening, that stable, broad stance of a mountain, where no matter what weather patterns may be arising and passing away, whether there's lightning or cold 
or heat or uh, rain or wetness or whatever it is, the mountain can just be there with it. And of course, I'm not saying don't protect yourselves. Of course, we, with equanimity, we know what to do. People think that, oh, equanimity is just like being a doormat, letting everything just, you know, and everybody just kind of walk all over me. But it's not that at all. It's like having a very strong inner sense of stability and knowing what to do, when to do it. So, of course, we may protect ourselves when we need to. So, too, when the weather patterns of the inner mindscape come about, when the heart and mind are open to whatever uh, it's open to, the weather patterns of aversion and hatred in our own hearts, times when we feel insecure, overwhelmed and helpless, uh, not being able to open, even not being able to open to what's going on. Are we destroyed by that? Or can we just feel a sense and apply a sense of equanimity to it so we're not whipped about by these inner weather patterns of the mind and the heart? Another example given from nature um, in the text is, I'll, I'll just say what the quote is from the Buddha, develop a mind that is so filled with love that it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. So it's a, it's a mind that cannot be destroyed by anything, cannot be marred, ruined by anything. This is the kind of love the Buddha is talking about that is powered through equanimity, resembling that wide open space, that heart as wide as the world, the name of one of Sharon's books. So one has a sense when this is happening, and sometimes we can actually feel it. It's not some far away uh, experience when we're really in tune with ourselves, we feel that space. We give ourselves a chance to feel it when we're in retreat like this. It has that kind of spaciousness that doesn't reject anything. It doesn't let defilement stick, in other words, when those uh, really difficult experiences come up in the mind, like shame or a feeling of guilt, or a feeling of wanting to strike out, or a feeling of weakness in a way that's kind of so closed down. The mind can just see it come and go. This is due to equanimity, because there's no reactivity to what's going on. It can see the defilements arise and change and pass away. The Buddha... uh, or His Holiness, rather, called this kind of non-stickiness, this kind of deep letting go, powerful letting go, as the inner disarmament. And when His Holiness talked about disarmament, he said, really, that if we could disarm all of these uh, difficulties, these kind of negative experiences in our own hearts and minds, 
this would be greater than disarming all the atomic bombs that exist that you know, could blow up this world many times over if they all blew up. So with equanimity, there's the ability to see the transience of it all and give it a chance to pass by if we have the chance to do that. Of course, again, if a response is necessary, we do it right away. We, we don't wait. In that space, when we have even a moment, we can know what to do, how to do, whether to do it strongly, what the best action is. And I like to give an example of this because um, no matter how much I say and how many times I say, of course we take action, of course we do something, there's always like lingering in the mind, what about taking action, you know, and um, people always feel that equanimity is just being like a blah, we won't do anything at all. So this happened a couple, three years ago, and it was the end of one of our retreats on Maui. And I went to the shopping center to buy some gifts for uh, the, some of the people who helped out. And a dear friend who is now um, Sister Viranyani, she was Miley at that time, she was with me. And um, we stopped at the entrance, and uh, we stopped because very nearby, not that far away, maybe I was here, and at the end of the hall there in the corner, there was a young man who was just standing there, and all of a sudden, another young man came along and started pummeling that man who was just standing there. Young boys. And so the man that was getting pummeled um, kind of went into a ball and started saying, no, stop, to this other man. And he wouldn't stop. And they probably were both on one thing or another. You know, um, the one who couldn't fight back was on one thing, and the one who was fighting was on another thing. So you know how it is. So I stood there, and this, this happened probably in the matter of one minute probably no more than that. And I watched, people were passing by, did nothing, just walked by. You know, well, they're young or whatever. I don't know what they were thinking. So I thought, I got to do something. I'm not just going to stand here. This is the way it is. A guy's getting pummeled, and I feel I need to take action. And quickly scanning, you know, the mind that it wasn't about being angry at either one of the guys. It was a feeling of like, that's how it goes, you know, this is the time of their life when this happens. But I'm not just going to stand there. So I ran over and I got close enough, not that close because I'm not that stupid, you know, I got close enough probably from here to there. And I said with all my might, I said, stop. I yelled and I screamed. And then I screamed out and I said, somebody help. Call the security guard or the police. Somebody come and help. I wasn't going to put my hand in there to try to, they're too strong. So I yelled and yelled with all my might. And finally, in no time at all, a security guard came. And when the security guard came and kind of touched them and started breaking them up, the guy who was pummeling the other guy the one guy who was getting hurt was just all down on the ground. 
and the other guy started running. Well, he started running towards me, you know. I was backing up, but he was really just running away. But I did have the sense, this is how it is, but get out of the way, you know. <laughs> get the hell out of the way. Don't just stand there. So I just want that to stick in your minds, that we don't not do anything. We do something. But sometimes we do have a chance to wait. We do have a chance to make enough time go by, let enough time go by to sense, what can I do about this? How can I respond to this situation? And to see if there's enough clarity in the mind to do that. And if there isn't, then to wait. During that time, I find that I don't always lose energy to do something, except when I see that doing nothing would be better. Just putting the Dharma duct tape on my mouth and not saying anything at all is always an option. But we forget about that option. We think that we always have to do something. But oftentimes, doing nothing is the best thing to do, not not needing to say anything. Just waiting and maybe taking a loving action later on, especially with our family. So I find that by making the intention and then having a clear mind space to plan how to act or what to say, my mind and heart gain momentum. And it's possible, actually, to do it this way. People pay more attention and respond better when they feel the power of your clarity, rather than when we're reacting with any form of greed or hatred. There's confusion there. And so what ends up is that people have a sense of the aggression or the judging or the clinging or the confusion in your own mind, and they have a reason to blame you or have a reason not to listen or to say that person doesn't know what they're talking about. So there's no power in that when people sense that. With even-mindedness behind our words and our actions, there's a lot of power, even if we say it softly, even if we say it gently. Recently, I received an email letter from uh, someone that had statements that activated a lot of painful feelings and reactivity towards that person. And the feeling was so strong that I felt like I really needed to get back right away. I mean, I had words on the tip of my tongue that were ready to go out my fingers and then press that send button, which I've done enough times to regret it. So, you know, just to pause and take time to think, how can I say this? Uh, And it's a good thing that I have paused. I haven't even answered yet, actually. This is quite recent. And In the meantime, even this afternoon, I was telling Steve, or was it this morning, I was telling him, you know, it's a good thing I didn't say anything because other conditions, other um, details have come up that are giving me a chance to respond with a little more intelligence and give my mind a chance to settle down. I really could have said everything I needed to say and it would come out graciously. I try my best, but deep inside, I know that there were some daggers in there, that you know, some of the statements were like double-edged, and I meant them to be that way. <laughs> you know, 
my mind can really trick me too. But when I waited, I saw, no, that it isn't right. That isn't right. I really need to be able to say what I need to say so that it will be received in a way where they can really feel the power of having a mind and heart that's as uh, balanced as it can be in the time that I'm being given to answer the, uh, that email. So when I look back, I, if I had answered that email you know, a few days ago or whenever it came, it would have made the situation worse. And I constantly see that when I've reacted. It has made the situation worse. It's made it more complex, more things to explain, more blah, blah, blah. So equanimity means pausing as well. So that's, that's about uh, reactivity, which is the far enemy of, re- of equanimity. It's because we can see it from afar. It's easy to see from afar. But the near enemy is apathy. It's called the near enemy because it can seem like equanimity. Sometimes people call it, even in Sayadaw Upandita's book, maybe it was his translator, but he called it fake equanimity. And this is when it's not really true. It seems like it from the outside, but inside it's, it's really just a sense of that kind of non-caring distance that we make between ourselves and another. We might feel or, or act like we're kind of chilled out, but actually we're feeling closed down. And I must admit that sometimes when we when we feel that closed-down feeling and we have that kind of, I can't connect now, that's actually wisdom when we know that you know, we're needing to kind of step back a little bit uh, and take stock of what's happening and maybe we're needing to protect ourselves a little bit. And that's what the closing down is all about. So we need to know the difference. But sometimes we're closing down in an uncaring way and people feel it. You know, it's kind of like um, uh, it's a hurt to another person when we're closing down. It's actually hurting them in a subtly aggressive way. So to watch those times when we have this kind of apathy or not caring, this uncaring distance, that can also be hurtful to others. When we do the equanimity practice in the afternoon, I'm really um, hoping that you all can touch into that so you know how it feels. There's nothing wrong with experiencing that. A lot of our practice, all of our practice, is discovering what all of this inner terrain is about. How can we recognize it more clearly with mindfulness that helps equanimity to know this moment so that we're really understanding ourselves very deeply. So as most of you know, equanimity is one of the four Brahma-viharas. And Brahma-vihara means divine abode. Vihara means abode, and Brahma means high or divine. But these aren't abodes that we have outside of ourselves, like some heaven realm. These divine abodes are within us. They're 
there the cultivation of loving kindness, uh, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are the divine abodes. It's said that all of them are fueled by metta, by loving kindness, because when we turn loving kindness to a suffering, the aspect of compassion comes out. It turns into compassion. If we turn loving kindness to joy, the aspect of sympathetic joy comes out because we can be open to their joy and not be jealous or envious and closed down in that way. And when metta turns to all the joys and sorrows and needs to open to everything in life, because sometimes that's what our sitting is like, the everythingness of life comes up, then uh, the aspect of equanimity has the strength to come out of that. It's said that of the four, equanimity is the king or the queen or the crown of all of them. It makes the others more powerful. So equanimity kind of feeds in also to metta. And I'll explain that more. It feeds into compassion and also to sympathetic joy. In fact, it's said that this uh, state of a heartfelt connection to whatever is happening with the spacious balance, even when it's turning towards suffering, allows that compassionate action that's uh, the response to suffering. Equanimity allows that response to suffering come with a lot of the force of compassion. And one can take action very forcefully because it's led by equanimity. Actually, we, uh, we have learned that when you look closely, it's, e- it's equanimity that's leading the way for a compassionate action to come forth. This is really palpable in the leaders that have been in most of our lives and are still in our lives today. We can really feel this from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We're very lucky that we live in this time where there's a living example of this in everything he does, in every way that he acts and speaks. Mostly that I've known of, it's with uh, this kind of compassionate action that's really led by equanimity. There's not kind of a leaning towards this way or that way. Sometimes when I've heard him deliberate or heard about him deliberate whether to take an action against, uh, say, the, the people of China, he says, no, they're human beings too. This will cause suffering to them as well. So there is a kind of open-heartedness that allows uh, you know, the, the welfare of all beings to come into view, not just his own people. There are uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King who've lived in, in most of our lifetimes. Um, if we're old enough, <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi died about the time I was born. A couple of years after I was born, he passed away. Or there are people like your own mother and father, like your aunts and your uncles, or like your grandmother or grandfather. My parents uh, lived through the war, as um, Steve's parents did, through depression. 
and they came through it with a lot of wounds, you know, physical wounds and also emotional wounds. My, my mother was in the Philippines during the time of the war. She saw a lot go on, and she came to America with me as a young child, a two-year-old, and um, she had to face a lot of life with, you know, not even knowing English and only have having gone through the fourth grade of elementary school. But she was a strong woman, had a lot of equanimity, got us through life, you know, with just facing everything she had to face and uh, a lot of equanimity, a lot of compassion got her through. So people in our own lives are like that. I'm, I'm speaking for all of you when I say that about my own mother. So, apathy, I should have talked about apathy. I did talk about apathy. (laughs) So I want to talk about the relationship of equanimity to loving-kindness, because we started our week here with loving-kindness, and um, how equanimity is such a crucial part of developing metta, or loving-kindness. It's said that metta would dwindle to a mere sentimental feeling if equanimity were not nourishing it or supporting it. Sentimentality is what comes from attachment a lot. Sentimentality doesn't hold a relationship together. It doesn't support a relationship. It's unconditional love. That, of metta that, that supports a relationship. And that is fueled by this open-hearted equanimity that's able to take everything that's happening with the situation or the person and say, this too is part of our life. Even with this, I can still love you. I don't, my, my love doesn't have to dwindle. My actions and words may be different, or the way my own heart feels could be different. But underneath all of that, I can still feel my unconditional love for you. And this is what makes metta so strong. It gives loving-kindness that unwavering loyalty to the processes of life, whether it's that person's process or our process. We have a loyalty to just staying open, even when the process gets difficult, even when they're not acting in a way that um, is so kind to us or that suits our, our needs at that time. We accept the ups and downs of life in others and ourselves. So this is what makes metta unconditional. Without equanimity, metta would not be metta. It would be a kind of attached love. So we all feel that. I mean, we sometimes, even with one person, we feel our attachment, but we also feel our unconditioned love for that person. It's good to recognize both and see how they're different. Somehow, I know that you can all relate to to this in one way or another with your own children or with the children 
that have been raised around you or just your own brothers or sisters. When um, Steve and I were raising our daughter, Therese, my daughter and Steve's stepdaughter, we went through the usual difficult times of her teenage years, the times when uh, she, she does metta practice. She um, calls herself a Buddhist, and she's attended a few uh, retreats already. Um, I know I must have been her difficult person many times. <laughs> I don't have any... I'm not deluded about that at all. <laughs> And she was my difficult person. That's, you know, when I said the other day, we can demote these people sometimes. Our loved ones get into that. And oftentimes they're both, as someone said, they're both the difficult person and the benefactor, or the difficult person and the loved one. And during that time when I would offer metta to her, I really had to add in an equanimity phrase, or else I really couldn't do the metta. So it, the equanimity is good to know also in terms of kind of weaving it in to your metta, sometimes with words. Sometimes it's just a knowing, understanding that, of course, may you be happy and peaceful, as I would uh, say in my metta towards Therese, may you be happy and peaceful. But I would also add, and things are just as they are, just so that I'm accepting the moment situation or the situation during that time period. And um, I'm not kind of holding on to an idea that she has to be happy and peaceful or else I'm not going to be happy and peaceful. So by adding just one little phrase, it helped to remind me, okay, this is the way it is. May you be happy and peaceful. And I love you no matter what. I offer you my goodwill and my friendship no matter what. That's kind of what that phrase is saying. Sometimes I would have to say, with a lot of compassion that's interwoven in those words, I'd have to say towards her, may I open to your journey, to your own journey, and not have it be my journey, you know, how I want it to be for you. Basically, I just say those first words, May my heart open to your journey. And the rest came as an understanding. Not be my journey, not try to control your life, but may I be open and courageous enough to let you go through your own suffering and find your own way through that. There was a time when... uh, she was graduating from high school. And um, every morning, you know, from the time she was little, she would come to the bed, my bed, our bed at that time. And, uh, and I, all during the time of raising her, I would nurse her and do my practice. Um, and even when I was doing my practice in the morning, you need a lot of equanimity for this part too. The kids would come in and out of the room and say, Mom, can I have the car keys? Mom, can I go out tonight? And all the things that, you know, you just have to have enough patience and equanimity to open your eyes and be responsive and say, let's talk about it later. Or, 
yes you can or no you can't, not this time, and get back to the practice. Well, Therese had this habit of coming in to the, to the room in the morning. And now this time, she's almost 18 years old, and she's laying on my lap, and I'm sitting there doing my sitting practice, and her head is on my lap, and her long legs, she's 5 foot 10 or 11 now, are hanging off the bed, edge of the bed. And she's graduating now, very soon. I can't remember that evening or the next day or something close. And I'm saying, um, you know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And I'm having one, two tears coming, dropping out of my eyes. And on one side, it's saying, don't go. And the other side is saying, please go. (laughs) And during that time, I had to open to both feelings, you know, like, oh, that that feeling of attachment that I really don't want her to leave. And she was going off to live with her her biological father, who who gave her more freedom, by the way. (laughs) And the other side of it uh, was that, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to let go. Um, and there was a lot of dukkha when she was in the house that last year. So, our, you know, there's one part that says, oh, go, you know. So opening to it all, opening to it all is part of equanimity. And that's what happens when you sit and do your practice. A moment of joy can be followed by a moment of suffering and vice versa. And we need to be able to open to it all. Indeed, we do. All beings have their own journey. You know, being able to let go is what equanimity allows us to do because we start to realize more and more deeply that it go, everything goes anyway. Birth and death and everything in between arise and pass away. People that we love are parted from us. This is how it is in life. So can we be, can our hearts be big enough to include all of this? To include the part that, you know, she is leaving and to include the part that your process is always changing. And to the best of my ability, I'll be with your process. I'll be with you. I'll connect with you. I'll be there for you, and I'll also let go when I need to let go. It said that um, what breaks down the barriers of metta so that metta doesn't become exclusive is equanimity. It allows us to include all beings without excluding anyone, to have that immeasurable inclusivity so that all beings uh, are part of our metta, our pervading metta. That's why we do the metta in the progression that it's done. And it's equanimity that allows us to go through that specific uh, uh, progression from oneself to benefactor all the way to difficult person and then starting to open to all beings no matter who they are, known or unknown seen or unseen, those people that we care for, those we don't care for, 
etc. So it allows us to open to it all. And this is because of that non... uh, uh, that ability to keep open to everybody. We know how hurtful it is when we ourselves are excluded. So with that in mind, we have also the thought, everyone wants to be happy. It's not doesn't make us happy when we're excluded. It's very painful. So when we see that for others, we see all beings want to be happy. That's the motivation that helps us to do the metta practice. So now I'd just like to talk about equanimity as a preparation for liberation, for the stages of liberation and for full liberation. As Deborah talked about the other evening, it's the last of the seven factors of enlightenment, equanimity. And when Deborah asked you all to imagine what your inner landscape or mindscape might be, if you were just about, if the mind was just about to make that leap into nibbana or the unconditioned, what would it be? And it might have surprised some of you to know that it would be a state of very deep balance. It wouldn't be a state of high uh, kind of bliss or kind of that spaciousness that's really not a spaciousness of balance, but it's a spaced outness. Uh, It wouldn't be anything other than a very deep balance of equanimity. It's said that equanimity is a doorway to nibbana, the doorway to this unconditional kind of peace that doesn't depend on any conditions at all. This is the preparation for liberation, where the true reality of life is deepened into, is really known. So equanimity is also this very strong quality that nourishes the wisdom factor, Wisdom is what liberates the mind and heart. Mindfulness helps to reflect that moment to moment, but mindfulness is not enough. Mindfulness alone is not enough. It needs wisdom for liberation. So equanimity has this great importance in terms of accessing and deepening into wisdom. The Buddha would say that for one who develops a deep abiding equanimity, it is a natural law to know and see things as they are, to know the Dhamma, the way things are. It's said that equanimity brings forth wisdom, and which is, and I'll quote the Buddha, which cuts through delusion and brings the realization of complete emancipation because of the clarity that this state of mind brings. Also, it's said that wisdom bears the fruit of liberation. So this supports and brings forth the the deep wisdoms like the laws of cause and effect are known without a doubt. The mind no longer doubts that this, this is true. There are causes and conditions, and they bring forth certain effects in life. 
when we say all beings are owners of their actions, that's one of the equanimity phrases. All beings are owners of their actions. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon our wishes. It said that the proximate cause for equanimity to arise is the understanding of karma. And that's why this this phrase is used. And so we'll go into that more tomorrow. Actually, I, I don't use that phrase right away because it causes reactivity. <laughs> One has to know a little more about equanimity before really understanding that. One has to know a little more about karma before understanding that. So with that spacious non-reactivity in the mind and in the heart, whenever anything pleasant arises at the six doors, you know, the six sense doors in the mind, there's no reactivity to that pleasant experience, meaning there's no attachment or clinging. And whenever anything that is unpleasant arises in the mind uh, or in experience uh, through the five sense doors and the mind door, there is no reactivity to what is unpleasant. And when there's no reactivity, there's no aversion in the mind because aversion is the reactivity to unpleasant and clinging attachment is the reactivity to pleasant. And the mind is very clear and calm. It can see things. Uh, Mindfulness can uh, reflect what is arising and passing away very, very clearly. Everything is completely clear. So there's also an absence of delusion. So things are arising and passing away, arising and passing away. No room for greed, hatred, or delusion to stick. Nothing to stick to the mind becomes very, very pure. The mindfulness begins to reflect the purity of the mind and heart. And it's said that in this state, one begins to realize what the mind of an arahant, a fully enlightened being, is like, just like this. It sees, the mind sees fully the wisdom factors of impermanence, the wisdom factors of not-self and the unsatisfactoriness of life without reacting to any of it. It just opens to it very, very clearly. So this is the deep protection of the Dharma when this is happening. When we do the Brahma-vihara practice of equanimity, it protects us from the eight Uh, winds of life, the eight changing natures of life, vicissitudes of life. But when we start to develop equanimity, and it develops very naturally in our mindfulness, in our vipassana practice, there is this very deep protection of wisdom that arises in the mind. Because more and more clearly, the mind is in alignment with the truths of life, is in alignment with the impermanence, with the unsatisfactoriness, with the not-selfness of all of life. And so very deep kind of protection is felt in one's mind.
and heart. And there's no doubt in the mind and heart about all of this. So I just want to end with a story um, that kind of exemplifies this story that I've told before here. It's about really feeling subjectively. And we, we, we can see this in our own lives as we go through life, the river of life. We're taken down the river of life in our practice here, even as we close our eyes and we take the journey. And as, then as we go into life, we'll be able to see more clearly with equanimity. There was a time years ago when I was um, with one of our teachers, Manindraji, who has since passed away. But he wanted me to, he always wanted me to go with him down the river Ganges uh, in India. He would say, I want you to go down the river with me because I'd like you to see the dead people floating on the river. You know, only your Dharma teacher would say this to you. <laughs> Just, you know, opening to all facets of life, even this. So we got on the boat and with several friends. And as we were going down the river, on the right side were the burning ghats, you know, of Varanasi, that the oldest city in the world, they say. And um, as I went along slowly down the river and I saw some of the people, you could see some of the people actually burning, some of the bodies actually burning. And you'd see them in different stages uh, because they were upon these uh, wooden pallets that were burning. And then the people around them wailing and um, just seeing a lot of sorrow and death. And then on the left side was the rising sun over the horizon, the birth of a new day, because you start out on these, on the river before dawn. So there was a dawn of a new day on one side, the birth of new life and the death of life on the other. And so just feeling that my heart was like, oh, I want that, I don't want that, you know, but opening to both, really needing the heart and mind to be open to it all. And then also, it was the last day of my time with Manindraji. And uh, later that afternoon, we were headed towards the airport, um, Bodh Gaya and then Calcutta, so I could take the plane out and he he would stay there. That was where he lived in Calcutta. And so holding my first teacher's hand, he was very loving with me, like a grandfather. wasn't like, you know, the other teachers I've had in in Burma, very kind of strict grandfathers, but a little bit distanced. Manindra was somebody that would hold my hand, and I knew the time was for parting with him. So a lot of sadness in my heart. I never knew if I'd see him again, actually. And so the sadness in my heart, opening to that, but also the gratitude and the happiness that I had the time to spend with him, and I could could actually do it in, in my life and visit some of these holy spots and be with him and other friends. So the happiness from that, 
opening to both the sadness, the joy for all of that. And so I could see in retrospect, but really not at that time, that that kind of opening, that ability to hold both the joy and the sorrow, the birth and the death, and all that comes with it in life. This is part of the feeling of equanimity, part of what you can feel in your own sittings, in your own life as you go out into the world. So this is the great importance of doing this practice in the way that we do it, continually inclining the mind there so that when we are in the sitting cushion or out in the world, when difficulties arise, joys and sorrows both, we don't have to react with attachment or aversion. The mind can stay open. The heart can stay open. So I'd like to end with a present-day poem by William Stafford. And this poem is from his book, The Way It Is. And it's from the very poem in his book called The Way It Is. So I've, um, this is an excerpt from that poem. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever lose the thread. So let's sit for a moment before I ring the bell. Thank you for listening on this hot, balmy evening. (laughs) Have a nice evening. And please come back for the sitting. Uh, Remember that Steve is going to do the metta chant at the end of the next sitting, so it allows people in the kitchen to come in and join. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.